Welcome once again to the Weekend Sportscast, part, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. And as always, with thanks first and foremost to the uh, wonderful people at Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers and to TorontoMotorsports.com. Once again, as we said last week, uh, MP is having a bit of a short sabbatical from uh, from Twisk with lots going on in his private life in the background. Uh, needs a bit of downtime and quite rightly should get some. Uh, I'm delighted to say we've got another special guest presenter uh, this week. And it's, well, I think the more attractive of the Frankitti brothers, actually, which we'll get into a little bit later. Marino Frankitti, Sebring 12-hour winner, Le Mans racer, British GT champion, loads more besides. And we'll get into that one in just a, a, a moment or two, Marino. Delighted you could join us and you are very welcome to Twisk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hard act to follow after having Guy last week, but delighted to be here. Well, he he was the batshit crazy one. Um, we're we're going to come up with a different moniker for your good self. Uh, we're going to get straight in, by the way, and for a little bit of kind of context about the generations involved here. Marino, you were the champion in the first full championship I covered as a professional journalist back in, was it 2001? It was, 20 years ago, and that was my first professional gig too, so... Wow, wow. I mean, my my kind of favourite story from that year was, I believe, a very rainy Snetterton, um, where you won the race, and I was concentrating so hard in not missing anything, and I missed an awful lot, that failed to realise that in the tipping rain there, I'd shared the entire race uh, sheltering under a Pratt perch on the... um, on the, the uh, pit wall at Stetterton with none other than your even then particularly famous brother. Um, hadn't actually realised he was sitting next to him and he'd been there for an hour. Completely ridiculous. Um, it kind of comes into the first question we're going to chuck your way. It comes from James Counter. And James, it's a very simple question. Marino, why are you better than Dario? <laughs> I don't I think we've probably <laughs> both got our... our or areas of expertise, but it's it's like any driver, you're going to be better on some days and better on others. But I think if you're looking at cold hard facts, he's you know not only did he win the the 500 and all those championships, but he also lucky won. lucky wins, lucky wins. Oh, I don't know, that, but it didn't, didn't feel lucky. My, my stress levels and yeah, I had hair when he started racing <laughs> for everything, but it was uh, yeah, I mean he won all those, but then he came into sports cars and. One Daytona 24, one Sebring uh, was on the podium with me at Petit. I mean, the boy's got it all. So I think it's a pretty hard act to follow that one. He's um, but, but, he's but, pretty amazing. Yeah, but on the, the upside, but you have got the looks. So that's okay. So you've got that side of things. James <laughs> <laughs> um, Hewitt uh, pops in with one. Um, well, I just mute that in the background. Uh, and he says... And I can't remember this one. What was it like driving the Chrysler Viper GTSR? I don't remember you doing a Viper. What no, was I, this one? I'm still missing bits of my uh, big toe from that. Uh, oh, what, was, what was that one? Remind me. That was in American Le Mans series with American Viper Racing. That was. Oh, was it? You drove that car? I did. I did for most of a season. I remember. Well, well, well. I don't remember that. I don't remember. A mechanic suit all season, like a single layer of Nomex. I must have been nuts. So um, part of your big toe or rather (laughs) yeah so the first race i ever did with them was in washington dc when we did that amazing street track yeah in the oh my goodness the temperature was ridiculous washington in the summer is not a place to be 
And I started the race. The car, you know, the, the team were, I would say, very underfunded, lovely guys, but did not have the budget and the cars were very tired. And I just remember 20 minutes into the race, I started hallucinating. I mean, I couldn't put my feet on the pedals because they, I guess they'd missed a piece of heat shielding or the heat coming back through the, the footwell was so bad that after 40 minutes, I was so out of it that I had to come in. So I went and got a couple of bags of IV, stole a pair of uh, Johnny Herbert's Hobbit shoes because <laughs> I had all this insulation underneath them. And uh, the, the, the owner, who I don't think should have been racing because he had open heart surgery, uh, he lasted 15 minutes. So I've got a bag and a half of IV into me. They pull, the car comes in, no one's there. They pull the IV out. I get back in. And by the end of the race, I had third-degree burns on oh. my big toe, which I then kept stuffing into race boots in different cars, and it got infected, and it was disgusting. So I was wearing sandals when it really wasn't cool to wear sandals just because <laughs> I, I had to. And by the time it healed, a good part of the toe, <laughs> toe was missing, and it took a long time for the, the nerves not to, to hurt, but it was... Yeah, it was a scary car to be honest. It was a it was a cool car and it'd obviously been amazing in its day, but by that point it was I mean the next race I think at Trois Rivières I split the I split the Corvettes off the start and then ran out of brakes at about two hundred miles an hour on the back straight. Um, oh my god. Yeah, and then Miami I made friends with Peter Cox by being right on his bumper and thinking about making a move just again as I lost the brakes and spun him around and oh man. Yeah. Laguna Seca, they tried something because I had understeer, which then the left-hander after the corkscrew, it it pinned the front down the hill, and that was when the wall was right there. Uh, really fast corner, and it was one of those accidents where I kept my eyes closed, and by the time I opened my eyes, it was you know that thing was a, a silhouette almost, the, the roof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I opened my eyes, there was no windscreen, the roof was gone, and yeah. That was a character building. That was the car, I have to tell you, that I learned the capability of um, a modern GT car. Uh, You know, you look at the the Viper, it's a a big truck of a car. Uh, And I think the first properly quick thing I was ever given a passenger ride in was one of the Chamberlain cars at uh, Silverstone. And you have that thing, because you're a racing driver and I'm not, where you've got this thing in your mind that you know when you should be braking, you know how quickly a car goes around the corner, and that taught me that the physics of a race car were very different because mm-hmm. it went round a corner. I thought it should do at maybe 50, 60 miles an hour, at 90, 100 miles an hour with ease, um, and it was braking later, and it was a big truck of a car, but my God, you know, the, the difference between what visually you thought it should be capable of mm. and what it was actually capable of, even though that too was a relatively tired car at that, that stage. Was I'd, love pretty, to have driven it. I'd love to have driven it when Orca were running it. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it was in its pomp. I just think it would have been quite an amazing car. So I saw it in other people's hands and it just, it was fabulous. Um, it was, it was the first car that I've always worn Balaclava since then with, noise cancelling material built into them. <laughs> and that was the car that sent me off on that because for days afterwards you would have like a concussion and also oh. had carbon brakes and it was such a big heavy car the carbon dust and it seemed to just suck it all into the 
cockpit and you'd just be blowing out carbon dust for like three, four days afterwards. It was good. Grief. It was quite a thing. <laughs> we're going to move on. We're going to come back to a couple of questions that have been directed at you particularly, but we're going to move on to some of the IMSA questions. And you should feel free to wade in with this one. Um, uh, we got uh, one here from Daniel Summerskill, who's uh, our friend and colleague who actually helps to put these questions together from us from social media. Uh, he says, what is the explanation for GRT, Grasso Racing Team, focusing on one series, the DTM, rather than several in 2022? Is it due to the amount of damage done, several cars this season, lack of good results in IMSA? It's a shame to see a former powerhouse of GT racing. He says so downgraded. James Counter says, do you think GRT basically becoming a DTM team is a risk, or is it a case of Lamborghini dictating where their mo- uh, money goes? Um, I don't know what you've, well, it's, that's the general point about DTM. I don't know if you've been following what's been going on there, Marino, yeah. with with uh, with GT3. A couple of impressions from your perspective about DTM, its future, and if you've got any thoughts on GRT, love to hear them. I would think, and this is just spitballing here and pulling something out of the that's back. That's what we do. <laughs> I think that you've got to look at a, a, a team like that that's based in Europe, trying to get to America at the moment, and all of the hoops you have to jump through with COVID. Even now, I think it's, and, and things are looking obviously even worse now with South African variants and everything else. Yep. I think I think it's probably just the easier decision. Um, DTM itself, I like everyone else, I was just so disappointed at the end of the championship, the way it turned out. Yeah. It's, it's got incredible, uh, it's got an incredible opportunity there and I think it's, it's a lot of, um, it could be fantastic, but it's got a lot of work to do now after that to show that, yeah, it's not just the like stock cars. I mean, we, you know, we've seen another bit of news this week, haven't we? With Scott Elkins joining as the race director there. Do you think, I mean, is that a kind of a response to some of the criticism they got during the season and after the season about the kind of level of discipline, the quality of the decisions were being taken and the way in which those races were being managed? I think it's, it's always difficult to comment on what the, the officials are doing because it's you're, you're not there, you're not seeing all the information yeah. there and everything else. But I do know that Scott is absolutely top drawer. You know, he's so well thought of in the FIA. Um, even when he's not, when he's doing Formula E, he, he does F1 weekends as well. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's incredibly valued there. So it can only be a good thing to have someone at his level in there. And hopefully it leads to, you just want hard, fair racing. You just don't want yeah. to see what you saw with, uh, at the end of the championship there with uh, Lawson. Just so disappointing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, for me on the GRT front, there'll be a plan. There's no doubt in my mind there'll be a plan that will be done, I'm sure, after conversations with Lamborghini Squad Corsa, that'll be part of what uh, GRT are looking to for the future, whether or not that's in the future for the DTM, whether or not that's to do with what they do in GT3, whether or not that's part of the plan with LMDH moving down the line. But there will be part, there'll be a plan. They will have considered the options, I'm sure, very carefully. I tend to agree with you. I think there's the, the difficulties with COVID have left bruises that haven't yet been seen externally with a range of teams literally as we press record on this show um i was posting on daily sports car the bulletin from sro um and from the kill army nine hours that confirms that race is cancelled sorry not cancelled is postponed uh this year just a week before um 
cars were due to, to go on track and you know that's gutting for everybody concerned it's been hard hasn't it i mean it's been hard to to plan it's been hard to travel it's been hard to execute and, and you know you've got uh, friends uh, f- family and colleagues around the world in motorsport it's been a tough couple of years Bruno. yeah it really has and yeah you know, i had dinner the other night with a friend who's works with an f1 team quite high up and he he's just back from three weeks of of travel and it's yeah doesn't matter how nicely you're doing it it's difficult it's it's taxing it's i think when we all go around the world racing the racing is obviously a fantastic part of it but there's more to our life on the road than that there's the there's the downtime that's so special and such a big part of what we do and makes it so i think uh helps you to cope with it being away from your family and everything else um there's lonely times in hotels and during COVID when you've had to have those, you know, you can't eat out with people, you can't break your bubbles, etc. You're terrified of being the one that does something that then brings COVID into the group. It's very difficult. It's very difficult being in these hotels and being away from your family. And it's not those little highlights that made it mentally easier are gone. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard for everybody. It doesn't matter which part of the team you're you're in, or which part of the organisation or anything else. It's, it's yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I, I kind of worked out uh, in the European first European season back. Uh, one of the things when you, you analyse what's going on, I look back at what was different, what was missing, if you like. What was missing was you couldn't actually physically face to face have a conversation or interview people. That, that had to be done from distance electronically. You're masked up everywhere, uh, and it is the. You're right. It's the. It's the bits that complete that that experience that weekend. It's the fact we've not got fans there. I mean, one of the things I'll be doing in the lead up to Christmas this year is looking back at actually some of the things that have finished in the last year. We've had at least four very significant drivers: Ollie Gavin, Pat Long. Kaz Nakajima and Davidson, who've completed their career, or at least the part of career that's going to be front and centre this year. And with the exception of Pat, they've all done that without fans being present. And that, to me, is such a shame. They're you know, four absolute ambassadors of the sport, four you know, powerhouses of the sport. And frankly, they deserved to sign off in better circumstances and it's those kinds of things isn't it that that's part of what we've we've missed out on over the last couple of years and we've got to basically claw some of that ground back back as the as the freedoms come back to us to to travel and to attend events and to mix a bit more and you know hopefully we can get fans back into the paddocks sooner rather than later there you go. Um, let's move on a bit. Uh, with LMDH and the 2023 horizon, is 2022 the last year for Honda and Accurate in GT racing? Uh, says John Richter. The car seemed to struggle in IMSA this year. <sighs> I don't think so. I think there's still a lot of energy behind that effort. It's it's you know in, in an era where you've got LMDH coming. LMDH is a factory formula with a customer element in the the. Um, the commercial side of things without a shadow of a doubt if you've got a customer element at that level seems to me 
Marino, that it makes perfect sense to have a stepping stone towards a multi-million dollar program. Um, I mean, uh, you know, GTD, GT3 internationally, is still multi-million dollar, but it's fewer multi-millions of dollars. Um, and it's still a very good car. Uh, have teams struggled with it this year? Yes. Will those teams learn uh, if they stick with the program? I'm sure they will. We saw that with uh, Maya Shank Racing when they were running the cars. They had years where it wasn't great. They had years where it got a lot better. Um, it has been fairly invisible, it's got to be said, uh, this year in the InterWeathertech Sports Car Championship. But I've zero doubt that with time, a little bit of energy and engineering muscle and time to consider the data that they'll find that time any team coming with a car that they've not run before is going to take time isn't it i think it is it's how many of those have been run around the world that's the thing you really need that strength and depth to make it worthwhile developing and also i think we've seen it with other cars over the years that you're it's difficult to get the rub of the green with bop if there's not many of you running so I think it's a cracking, cracking point. Of course, we've not had the European program uh, internationally. It's been a little bit kind of piecemeal. We've had cars running in GT Open. We've had cars running in the Italian GT Championship, the odd one-off here and there. But there's not been, you're completely correct, a full-season effort. With IMSA, fewer than we've had before, um, without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, and in, in many cases, it's it's teams and drivers running those cars for the first time, which again means they've got to find their way around the best way to get the performance out of the car. But you're right, there is that that is that element that often is forgotten. We like something a bit different, but often in an era of BOP, that's a weakness. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, what else have we got? Uh, Trevor Gagola says, will Corvette Racing be running two Corvettes for the Rolex 24? Well, we've heard from GM that they will consider running uh, more than one car. And you'd have to guess that the Rolex 24 might be one of those programs that perhaps they do look to. The, the strength of potential for that is it is a good developmental opportunity for GM. Then the first race for the other car, if you like, is... Sebring in the same state some months later. So logistically, it's the least difficult one to add an additional car to. It's a huge race. Uh, I mean, how many times do you do the Rolex? I'm not actually sure. Not as many as I would have liked it, to, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's a big, big Great. race in the States. And I guess a lot of your career as well was it was in that, you know, that period of time where you did one or the other and not always both. Yeah, before we got to the Tudor United Sports Car Championship. But I, I'd have guessed that that would be one they'd be looking very carefully at running two at. If nothing else, it's the first race for GTD Pro. There's a lot of cute dos for, for a winning car in that race in whatever class. And certainly with a brand new class, getting, you would guess, um, a fair amount of the TV coverage. But my guess is that would tick a lot of the corporate boxes. I think as well, your your other car goes into, let's see, the WEC round the Sebring with a whole 24 hours under its belt. So not just the, the car for development, but also or, or evolution of the setup. But it helps the drivers, it helps the crew, it helps everybody, just sharpens everyone up. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that one. Moving on, um, we've got uh, John Richter asking about Ferrari, Daniel Somersgill asking for Lamborghini, um, and uh, about GTD in IMSA. And... Well, we wait and see for both of those that we've heard of the potential for 
uh, one-off entries for the Rolex 24. We now know GRT uh, will not be uh, taking part in IMSA. We uh, know that Paul Miller Racing will not be part of the Lamborghini setup in IMSA. We'll we'll just have to wait and and find out just exactly what comes out. Uh, the other end of this one, uh, unless you're going to give us any massive scoops that uh, you're going to be back in a multi-car entry, really. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, Here's a question, though. With IMSA, yeah. if, the, if there's no Lambos running, so they then don't have the, 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 sort of the commercial relationship with IMSA to, you know, the... Good point. ...helps to... To sell the program, um, I'm not sure I, how I, it works. I, so. I just can't see that happening. I I suspect that what we'll find is a name or names will emerge that will be running the hurricane. I suspect that will that will be the, the the case that you know somebody will emerge from that, and that comes down to like what we've seen in the past in the recent past is Lamborghini have been very good at managing their customer base. Um, they've lost by the look of things two customers in IMSA. I'm going to be presuming they've got something up their sleeves as they too prepare for a later introduction of their customer base into LMDH. That's looking like 24 at the very earliest. But so that's a very, very good point because, of course, at the moment, the only place they can be present is GTD and GTD Pro. They don't have a product uh, elsewhere. Um, we're going to just spool back to some of the questions aimed directly at your good self. And I'm going to go with Otter FR, who says, Hi, Marino. What's your favourite part of the Le Mans circuit? What's your favourite time to be in the car there? My favourite part of Le Mans? Unfortunately, generally the exit gate is I'm going home with another disappointment. <laughs> 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 you know, I love Le Mans so much. It's The reason I wanted to do sports cars was having seen Derek Bell win Le Mans in 87, and I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And it's just never been a place that's that it's worked out for me. There's always something that's happened that's gone wrong. It's um, yeah, I really need to go back there and have a have a, just a fun event with no pressure and just kind of set it straight in my mind because every year I've gone there, something's gone wrong in some way. Uh, does the does something like the classic appeal? We've got the centenary. Not uh, really. Yeah, it doesn't. It's, you want to go back and run a race. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be the, the big one. I mean, I would definitely do want to go and drive historic cars there, but I need to go and sort of make my peace with the oh. with the main race, I would say. Um, favourite part of it? Definitely not the chicanes. <laughs> uh, I think it's very easy to say, but going through the Porsche curves yep. is pretty special. I've always liked fast corners, and the commitment that it takes there is... When a car is well balanced, it's uh, it's pretty special. And I think of time, everyone. There, there's a point in the middle of the night when you get in and it's dark and you go into the light. That is uh, more special than anything else I've ever done in a car. I think just for the pure, the pure uh, theatre of of being an endurance racer. It's Absolutely. unbelievable watching the world, watching that. Watching your world open up, it's like having tunnel vision and you're alone and it's quite peaceful. And watching that world open up and as the light comes up and your car comes more alive and there's just this, you know, it's obviously happy hour, but it's it's just a beautiful thing to, to see. Good stuff. John, John Rick's asked another question. He says, um, 
Guy Smith last week talked about the underdeveloped Ginetta and the potential that that car had in LMP1. He's asking, have you dri- driven undeveloped cars in those big races that could have done more? Wh- which one or ones come to mind? Ooh, uh, it's a very good question. I think 2010 Sebring, when we finished second with the, the Acura. Ooh. Oh, yes. Sorry, which was just a one-off race, and we didn't, we, you know, after the 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 uh, after the earthquake in Japan, we then ended yep. up not doing Le Mans, which was really disappointing. But that car that was a that was a cracking car, wasn't it? Cracking car, great run, and the car had been built in the paddock. And the run that myself, Simon, and uh, Simon Pagano and David Brabham had was was incredible. But we were only scratching the surface. I would have loved to have been able to go. To them all with that team, with those guys that year, and uh, tried it, had a go, seeing see what we could have done. Uh, For those that, those that don't know what we're talking about, it, was a, it, was, it was a one-off version of an LMP1 accurate, yeah. wasn't it? Was so that what, the car that was destroyed in the earthquake, or was that another car? That was another car. But I, yeah. think Simon, uh, I think Simon would have been with Peugeot, but it would have been me, Brabs, and I can't remember what else we had, but it was... Anyway, that, that's one of them, and another one is the um, with, with Paul Drayson and the the Vantage at 2009 oh, yeah. Le Mans yeah. because the car had wonderful balance, but it was really, really underdeveloped and it became, it came good eventually, but it was so well balanced, but it hit this aero wall at about 25 miles an hour or less than every other GT car. So it was just so destroying. And I think it broke down 23 hours and 10 minutes into the race. So yeah, but that, that was a car that you could just feel it was going to be great once they, they got it right. You mentioned Simon and Peugeot. You had a dalliance with Peugeot, didn't you, at one point? Am I, I right? I did, Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. No, because I, I got, I got the, the, the impression that you could have been part of the season that never was. I was part of the season that never was. Um, I'm sitting here looking at my Peugeot helmet up on the wall in my office. <sighs> um, yeah, I, I'd spoken to them during the year. Uh, <sighs> They were lovely, but there was a sort of, nah, it's not going to happen. And I was like, okay. But we always kept in touch. And I was in Japan having, uh, Japan, I was in Australia having just raced uh, this the guest, as a guest driver in the V8 supercars at, uh, at uh, Surfers Paradise. And I was getting ready to go on holiday with my wife. And I got a call from Peugeot saying, could you come back and test? And it was one of those where I was like, well, just starting the holiday and I looked at if I could make it back and I could make it back but it was going to literally be by the skin of my teeth so I thought you've got to have a go so I flew back straight from Australia to Aragon and tested it was the hybrid car so it was a white and black car with a hybrid connected at that point yeah yeah and yeah I did some did the test there uh went pretty well it was absolutely like a zombie having (laughs) <laughs> back from Australia, but yeah, it, it was pretty special to get to drive that that Fusion, and then I was going to do Spa and Le Mans with them that year, possibly some other races, but definitely okay. Spa and Le Mans. And I got on the plane to go to Sebring for a thirty-three hour test or whatever it was. Um, and, and that was the infamous test that was pulled as you guys were arriving in the paddock. Well. All the stuff was there. As I say, my helmet was there. Um, I landed in Miami and 
my I turned my phone. I remember Jonathan Williams, uh, Sir Frank's son, was and who, who ran all the historical stuff at Williams was on the plane with me. And, you know, I'm in business class. I'm thinking this is it, factory program. Yeah. This is awesome. And landed, and my phone just went nuts. And it was yeah, while I'd been in the air, the whole program had been cancelled. Oh. And I so that was the Delta wing the next day. So that, oh, <laughs> oh dear, but what the, what a heck of a day. So. Mm. So that was yourself, Ollie Pla. Yeah. Who else was involved in that program? Uh, the guy that does touring cars, now, young French guy, who's not young anymore, but um... Vernet. Vernet, yeah, he was definitely involved too. Wow. Which cars? Who was going to be in? I don't. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Um, but. Well, yeah. Then about a month later, this box arrives, and it was. It was my helmet with all the the total stickles or total stickers on. That is gutting, gutting. Right, let's move on. Let's do a little bit of what we call Weck Aslam's Elms and Aco, uh, which is the ACO rules racing stuff. And uh, we're going to go with now. This is uh, a. Uh, Twitter handle I've not seen before at Hornet. Uh, it says Robert Kubica um, or Kubica uh, confirmed today he will compete in the WC in the LMP2 class. Do you have any rumours which teams it might be? I think I do. I think that comes down to the clue that Robert was testing um, in the post uh, Bahrain rookie test with Iron Links in the Ferrari. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to go and race with Ferrari, but we know that Prima Power Team are coming to the ELMS and WEC next season with a single-car LMP2 uh, effort that will be uh, run with Iron Links. And wow. I would be remotely surprised to see Robert as part of that. It'd be, it'd be good, wouldn't it, to have someone with... Well, I wouldn't say a few grey hairs, that's not fair to Robert, but someone with experience, he is now the reigning ELMS champion, with what I've no doubt will be a couple of young guns in that car, Marino. And it, I mean, again, you've, you've, you've served both those processes and teams. You've been the young gun. You've also been someone who's been the, the wiser old hair, older head in those cars. And actually having someone with experience, absolutely invaluable. It is. When they're the right person, they've got to be the right person. They've got to be open to teaching you and open to passing on their their knowledge. And it's got to be a, a, a team effort. And I don't think age comes into it as much as just your attitude. You know, I think when yeah. I think back to those great teammates I've had who have been more experienced or maybe not older, but just experienced. But when there's an openness and you yeah. put each other on in that positive way and there's a, a spirit of doing the best for everybody it's it's such a powerful thing it's unbeatable actually one of the the truly great things about sports car racing is that if you can get a team to gel uh it is an an amazing thing to to watch i can't imagine what it must be like to be in the middle of it i can't imagine what that's that feeling of camaraderie togetherness the, the the sporting aspect of it and it is something that i know a number of young drivers have said to me they came in expecting not to like it and absolutely loved it. It was a totally different feeling from being in the self-centric atmosphere of single-seaters to move into something where they were a key part of a team effort. And, you know, unbeknownst to them in their developing years, it was something that probably they were craving, really. Well, look um, at Alonso. Look at Alonso as mature yep. as he was and experienced and 
un, obviously an unbelievable driver, but you, you hear the way he speaks about the the team part of what he was doing with the other drivers, both in his car and other cars. Yep. I think it was really special. And that, that for me was that highlights exactly what I love yep. about sports car racing. There was a moment with Fernando uh, with the pole lap at uh, Le Mans, and I think it was Kaz that put the car on pole from memory. It usually is, isn't it? <laughs> it usually is. And um, it was the usual freneticism at midnight when you know, you've finished at qualifying and the media are all there and clamouring for the photograph and all calling for Fernando to come forward. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it until... Cass was actually out of the car and able to celebrate that lap with the team. And I thought, you know, for whatever people chuck at Fernando in terms of the perceptions about his attitude to his outlook to it, that moment spoke volumes. That moment said to me, he gets it. He, yeah. he absolutely gets it. He, he, he completely understands that it's not about him, it's about them, and that he can celebrate his own successes, but the bigger deal is to celebrate with the team. Exactly, and that's, that's how I saw it as well. I really loved the way he went about it, and I think, I think it obviously fed his his passion for the sport again because he was obviously quite. He could have just stopped after that, but the hunger for him to get back is really impressive. You see the way he's driving now, and yeah. I hope that his years in sports cars are a big part of why it's so successful now. Getting getting that hunger back. But I think you're, you're likely right. Jeffrey van der Ketterel asks, is there any news about Racing Team Netherlands and their plans for next season? More LMP2 teams seem to want to take on the IMSA adventure. Could this be related to the power cuts they got in WC last season in order to make Hypercar stand out? Fritz van Erd, he says in particular, was not a fan of it. The lack of attention the program class got, uh, where IMSA, LMP2, uh, it, it is program overall, is he correct? So he says, right. Well, first things first, don't think anybody involved in LMP2 was particularly a fan of having the cars reeled in in terms of the weight and in terms of the power. I had a particular conversation with Fritz and with the guy who handles the program about the program class. We had a very constructive uh, dialogue about that. He went off and they went and had a conversation with um, LMEM, who run the FIWC. And that did make a difference. That You did see a bit more attention being brought towards that program class. As far as the program class is concerned, actually, um, not hearing anything negative uh, from the paddock about that, actually uh, quite the opposite. It's added a level of competition between the peer group for those bronze drivers that, let's face it, pay for a goodly chunk of those efforts. That's actually helped those teams to sustain that effort through what's been a particularly difficult time. Does IMSA have um, some advantages? Well, with the travel to America opening up, um, one, it's easier uh, for them. Two is it's another different adventure. Let's face it, you know, Rino, you've worked with a lot of gentleman drivers up and down the years. It's fueled by passion, isn't it? It's fueled by experience. It's fueled by let's go and do something that's truly extraordinary that I can tell my children, grandchildren, friends, you know, uh, pals about. It is fueled by all of that, isn't it? And so the opportunity to do something different has got to be a good thing. has to be. And, and racing in America, some of those iconic tracks is so, so special. And the atmosphere in the IMSA paddock is just incredible. The, yeah. 
Yeah. Look, I'm obviously born and raised in the UK, started my career in, in the UK, but really I never raced in Europe much. And yeah. I, when I did later in my career do a bit of racing in Europe, I honestly didn't enjoy it. I missed America. I missed all the way that the, the, the way that they go racing there and the openness and the camaraderie and the, the vibe, just the, the energy of the place, honestly. And yeah. I also, there's still tracks in America that have track limits, but I got really pissed off with track limits. I got sick. How, how fast could someone go and then go over it and then come back? And where's the skill in that? I don't want yeah. anyone to get hurt, but also if you make a mess, when you go over that limit, you should be punished for it. And that's another reason that I think that, that the thrill of these American tracks is is lost in some of the way that the European tracks have gone, in my my humble opinion. I guess the other thing in so you've got that mix of circuits. I mean the street circuits is something we just don't have in the WC. Oh, well, it's just I was saying to Guy Smith last week. I here's the bizarreness, and and it was something that only became kind of a, a thing for me very recently in a conversation, which is I've never attended a race at a street circuit. I've never done that um, because I, yeah, I, I'm sure absolutely right. I'm sure I do, and it's that it is that thing because I tend to cover certain series, and those series have tended to be season long things, and there's been odd moments where. We've had a street race. British GT did Poe, for instance, one year for the cup cars. I didn't go. Uh, Mark House and my colleague went instead. I didn't do either of the FI GT3 races at Bucharest. So I didn't do the Baku races. Uh, you know, sent somebody else to do those as well. So, yeah, I think you're right. I do need to go. I do need to experience it. Because if you can offer an opinion, opinions tend to be more valid, don't they, if they're opinions born of experience. And um, yeah. I do have opinions on um, on street tracks, but perhaps they're less valid than some of the others that I tend to spout. Let's pop back to another couple about your good self. I've your... got to say, though, the, uh, uh, a prototype around the tri- a tight street circuit. When we used yep. to have two metre rear, rear wings and you would come in and you'd shaved <laughs> the, the heads <laughs> off the bolts and you weren't even aware of doing it, that there is a thrill to that that I just can't, can't describe. Fantastic. Here's one about... Um, a car that certainly has been hustled around a fair few street circuits, and it may well be that you did uh, more than one of them. Peter Mackay, uh, may well be a name you recognise, uh, Marino, uh, asks, where would you rate the Porsche RS Spider amongst the cars that you've raced? Oh, right up there. It's funny, you're talking about gentlemen and bronzes getting into into the LMP2 Pro-Am class, and uh, my mate Francois Perodo's going to be in that oh. next year, I think, and he has just the best cars. He's such a such an enthusiast, and he has the RS Spider, which I know he loves driving. And it's I had dinner the other night with Frank Valliser, and we yeah. were just I was in California, I was in LA, and we were just waxing lyrical about the Spider days and all of the processes, and that that car was incredible. It's right up there for me. I was lucky enough to drive the Acura and the Porsche, and it was a very special car and I would dearly love to get back in it at some point because it's it's one of those that you remember the sensations but you just like to refresh them. Okay, Manu Connard drove uh, Francois's car, didn't he, at uh, Silverstone Classic last, last year. That yeah. is, that's the Le Mans winning car from, I want to say, 08. 
Yeah, Van Merck. Yeah. yeah. But uh, amazing, amazing cars. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, Going to move into what we call her general. General. Uh, James Counter says, after a very enjoyable Sebring 24 and a Herculean logistics nightmare, the only thing uh, he thought was it needed a few more entries. Do I agree? Um, uh, what class would you add to make uh, a 24H series race even better? Uh, first things first, fantastic job by Preventic against the odds after poor weather delayed the freight and they had to delay the race by 24 hours. It cost them entries without a shadow of a doubt. That should have been well over 30 cars ended up with. Uh, oddly enough, 24 for a 24-hour race. Um, and that did cost them, I think, some on-track action. It's one for you, actually. You, you've raced all sorts of stuff. What would you like to add as a kind of class in a 24-hour race at that kind of level? Uh, what did they have? I've got to say, yes. I well, they start with, G, start with GT3. There's kind of cup cars. Yeah, GT4 cars. TCR uh, takes place uh, part in, in that race as well. They've got what they call TCX, which is a bit of a catch-all of... Funnies, if you like, including uh, including some cars that otherwise could race in other GT classes. But uh, what they've not got is what they used to have, which is a grassroots class, a really grassroots class. And it's a, it's a conversation I've had with a number of people about if you could do a sort of TCR type thing, but for small capacity touring cars. If you could do a kind of tube frame car or you know, whatever that you could put a Ford Fiesta body on or, you know, whatever else might be in that kind of super minis category with something like a 1.4 turbo modern engine in it. I think that could be quite fun. Throw a few C1s out there. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> have you done the C1 race? I have, yeah. But bloody Dave Ward and eight oh, the progressive, progressive dragged me into it. It was hilarious. Um, it was very slow, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that I, I do like that. Maybe include a local wherever they go. I think maybe include an SCCA class or something. Well, that's a good uh, idea. But what? But uh, I mean, um, uh, James uh, says a Mazda MX-5 class, and I have to say the action in the MX-5, the uh, the MX-5 Challenge in IMSA has been extraordinary awesome. uh, to, to watch this year. Absolutely, it's highlight real, isn't it? Every race. Oh, it is. I, I can recall oddly enough um, uh, going along to. Uh, to see friends in Daytona when well, I wasn't on a racing trip on a family holiday and we we're passing the speedway and there was an SCCA race meeting on so we popped in uh, that was myself and my good lady and uh, my then much younger son and the race as we came through the infield tunnel um, was MX5 Cup and I've never seen anything like it on a race car you know you've got five six seven cars bump drafting around the banking absolutely amazing stuff fantastic uh, action thinking mx5 class is a brilliant hey, idea sorted <laughs> um let's have a quick look Stephen ellis says as well 24 hour event uh, 24 h of dubai he says is a cool event there's actually a great grid uh, growing with that 90 plus cars again he says the rest of the 24 hour series seems to lack something in quality is there a, any push to make it stronger attract better entries or should we just fully accept is a club racing series i think that probably misunderstands what it's about they're unashamedly um grassroots in their origins and this is grassroots on an international level of course it's grassroots with a significant budget behind it for many of those teams but i think with, with absolute respect, Stephen, what they're trying to do there is to encourage that passion that we talked about a little earlier um, to be pushed a little further up the ladder. I can remember sitting in the driver's briefing of a 24H series uh, race event. I, do, I don't think I can recall you ever taking part in those. 
I haven't, unfortunately, no, but I do. Okay. I keep an eye on them. I think but they're it, brilliant. But it was, it was interesting. Gary Villans, um, who's long-standing part of the Creventic organization, with this glittering array at Dubai of international GT drivers, um, and basically saying what you need to remember is that these guys, you know, the um, club-level guys, are allowing you to come and race in their race. This is their race. They're just allowing you to come. And he then went on to tell the story of, of his own first race car, which I think, I'm, if I'm right, uh, was a diesel Seat Leon. And, you know, how he took pride in that. And that when it came to the 24 hours of Dubai, that's his Le Mans. He was never going to be able to be able to afford to go and do the 24 hours of Le Mans. But the 24 hours of Dubai became that, that iconic race for. And I like that outlook and that attitude. I like the fact that what this is, is an event that is shamelessly um, focused around a different audience from the Marina Franchitti's, the Laurence Fanteurs, the Kevin Estras, the Alan McNish's. I, I like the fact there's something there for other people that gives them a window on something better. It can only be a good encouragement to go further. It's also, by the way, a good example of um, an organisation and a race series that principally is what I would describe as participation motorsport. It's not, it is an international event. It does have profile because the likes of Radio Le Mans and Daily Sports Car and others have helped to push that message that there's something good here. Um, but principally, that is an event that is run for the people that run in the event, not for a TV audience, not for um, a magazine audience, but, but actually it's a participation event in the same way that lots of other more grassroots sports have those participation events. And, you know, I think we see that a lot as well. Uh, an arena, I know you've, you've been firmly involved in with historic racing uh, more recently, uh, Marina, that there's a lot of those events that are principally not, not quite behind closed doors. They're popular for people to go and watch, but they're not pushing for that, are they? That's not the purpose. Mm. Yeah, you have to have those places where people can come along. And as you say, it, it, you can't be dismissive about these. These are such big events for people. And it's wonderful that you get that that different level of driver at these events because it can only help the amateurs to improve. Okay, got one here that I'm sure you can help with. Ricky Zagata says, how does test, testing work for sports car racing with so many series running the same car? Is it possible to declare a test session for series you're not actually going to run in? Um, I think what he's asking for there is, can you game the system? Can you basically go and take part in a test session for a series that you're not going to go and, um, and run in to, to use that track time for... Um, advantage in another series. Can you go and run in an IMSA test for a car that you don't plan to run for a full season IMSA, but take advantage of that testing for the WEC? I think they're cleverer than that, is the straight answer. Well, they are, but I think there's certainly points where if, let's say, you have a manufacturer program that runs in both series, you can use the testing in a clever way that if one series has used most of its testing or is busy with races to races, you can run something on a car in the other country just to try it out for them and feed it back to them. So, yes would be the answer, I would think. <laughs> uh, we're going to move on to a couple of questions in fun. Now, I think you, uh, you and I uh, know to varying degrees um, Zach Brown. Yep. So, 
Dan Rice, with McLaren's Zach Brown jumping into the cockpit for the Abu Dhabi 12 hours, the Gold 12 hours, he has two questions. Now, I'm going to read this verbatim. What have we as motorsport fans done to deserve someone as awesome as Zach in our lives? He just loves racing and it shows. He most certainly does. I mean, um, extraordinary personality, extraordinary level of achievement, extraordinary car collection, extraordinary place at United Autosports. Tell us a little bit about Zach. Ah, Zach's the best. I mean, if you think he's good, what you see, first of all, is his passion and his... Actually, he's even more passionate in person than he is than it comes across because this is his business, especially when you see him in the F1 stuff. He is just one of us, and he's worked hard to get in a position where he can buy cars that mean something to him. They all mean something to him. Yeah. They all have a story behind them. They all... Yeah, he's he's unbelievable, and we are so lucky to have him in the position that he is. Uh, he's he's a pure racer. He loves it. He loves all parts of the sport, and you see that. And it's been so good to see him expand McLaren into different parts of the sport. I think the fact that they're getting the GT4 out and getting his two IndyCar drivers in is awesome. He's just, he's just someone that we geek out on stuff. We talk about cars, yeah. and he knows all the details he is a true scholar of the sport he knows everything he's unbelievable he's a bit of a i mean i've said it before i, I think he was a bit of a mold breaker and the fact that you know uh, you know absolutely better than anybody the passion that your brother had for racing as a whole and you know in retirement from indycar happily he's able to fulfill some of that now but didn't do le mans and that was through a period of time where there just wasn't a structure that encouraged that, was there? That encouraged drivers to to mix those codes. And Zach absolutely was a standard bearer to break that mold, particularly with Formula One, um, particularly with what he did with the program with United, with Daytona, and with what happened with Fernando Alonso, with IndyCar. And all of a sudden... For, by some pr- uh, process of wh- whatever it was, osmosis, the realisation that we're positives here, the world has changed. We are now seeing drivers look outside their particular bubble, and that, that's got to be a good thing. has to be. It truly is. And I think as long as you don't have, and again, it's not the drivers or these famous drivers that um, push this. It's the, and again, it's not the specialist press that push this. but the press that it brings in for the events is great, but it can be annoying when it's focused again, like say Alonso, where it's just yeah. Alonso. I think that can be hard for people that are embedded in the sport. But the fact that we're allowed to have these guys in these different events is so cool. It's so brilliant. And it's even back to Porsche with Hulkenberg and things yep. like that. It's just awesome to see these guys jump from, from car to car. And I think, well, Chip was ahead of the game on that one. He would always get his IndyCar guys and his NASCAR guys and chuck them in a in a sports car at Daytona. And it's uh, yeah. we want to see more of that, definitely. Absolutely right. I think with that, it's a very good point, by the way, uh, in terms of the way in which that media coverage came. But a bit of that, that's, to my mind, you know, this is me not being a professional racing um, journalist. This is me being a professional communicator. That, I'm afraid to my mind, just shows that people need to work smarter. The, the factory teams involved in those programs, the championships, the big races need to work smarter. Don't go for the low-hanging fruit of, 
we can get, I don't know, GQ magazine to write about Le Mans because um, Fernando's here, but actually get everybody to work together to say, what can we get from this opportunity? What what can we get that will last for you at Toyota beyond the point where Fernando wants to do this? And I do think that perhaps some of those those battles weren't fought and won, that perhaps people were a little bit too jealous of their own territory and that, you know, what you got were walls being built up around those stories. And, and yeah, I, I think you're spot on is the straight answer with that. There's a follow-up question from Dan here, and uh, this is going to draw particularly on you with your extensive knowledge of the automotive industry, which I know you have, uh, and talking about Zach, but uh, he says, pick any team, any class, any series, which team would gain the most by having their CEO behind the wheel? So what you're looking for here is, Who's there at the top end of the automotive trade who could actually go out there and wheel a car um, that perhaps that t- that, that organisation uh, builds? I'll chuck one in, by the way, and it's not uh, an automotive OEM, but it's Toto Wolf. No no slouch beyond the wheel. I, I think, oddly enough, I think he won the Dubai 24 hours before yeah, he... Um, he the Nürburgring on the north side for a while as yep. well. But uh, we've had Toyota from Toyota involved with this. We've had uh, Oli Betts when he was in charge at Aston Martin. Andy Palmer has been out there. Carly isn't the one I'm putting out there. Cause yeah, that's, a, just, that's a cracking call. That is a cracking call. He's uh, First of all, he can really drive. You know, we, we, um, we send each other sort of onboard videos a lot. And <laughs> that man can wheel a car. He's bloody fast uh, he gets it he gets it from obviously he's leading one of the biggest man- car manufacturers in the world but he again a true he has a true passion for our sport he knows all about it and different cars and he for me would be yeah i'd, I'd definitely stick him in as, as a bronze somewhere and he would be outstanding That'd be cool, wouldn't it? I just hope that a couple of experiences of CEOs stuffing cars into walls hasn't put him off that, uh, because actually seeing him in a GT4 or a future GT3 car could be very cool. Well, he, you know, he was out in the, he drove the the 4GT race car around uh, Laguna Seca recently, and he was wheeling that thing properly. It was awesome. He really got after it. So, and I know that he loved it. So it was nice to to see that he he definitely has the capacity to do it. Excellent. We're going to finish this off with a couple of more questions to uh, to your good self. The first one comes from uh, Baxter. Uh, Marino, you've had more than your fair share of runs with ill-fated teams, he says. Um, if you could go back in time with the power to trade up or to another en- uh, entry of your choice or stick with the team but pre- uh, prevent a single misfortune for the season, what would it be? I guess it's a bit it's a bit like the, the thing we we ran through the initial lockdown, which is Looking back at all those years, would it be Peugeot? Would it be that that happened? Would it be that something that happened that you could undo? What What would you turn back time and change? Uh, there's a couple of things that I would that I'm kind of not not ready to share yet. But <laughs> at the time, I I always made the best decision with the information that I had. It definitely felt like every time I would get some momentum, the rug would be pulled out from under me, and that's just that's how it happens. I'm not. I had some incredible opportunities and some incredible results, so it's not it's not all negative. But it's hard to have not had. Yeah, I can see 
that sliding doors thing of some of the things that were on the other side. And it's hard to, to have missed those. But all these things happen for a reason and you, you end up where you end up. And it's, again, when I, I wish I could honestly make some different decisions, but would I have? No, because you make the best decision with the information you have at the time. And I always did that. I think that's absolutely spot on, my friend. And what are you doing to fill your your working days now? What What is a typical working month for Marina Franchitti nowadays? It's very busy. Um, it's I, I still want to I still want to go back to the states and do some prototype driving. It's just mm-hmm. finding the time to do that and finding the opportunity. Uh, but at the moment, I work with a company called Singer Vehicle Design, who yep. who reimagine old 911s. So they take old 964 and restore them for their customers. And there's a certain amount of uh, fettling with uh, how the cars feel within that. And we had a program that we did with a design and lightweight study, which we started with the William with Williams Advanced Engineering, which is a 500 horsepower, 9,000 RPM 911. Uh, wow. Nine, They're stunning yeah, uh, things. Uh, amazing. Beautiful. And that's honestly, I love, I love Porsches anyway, so it's a very easy. I'm sitting here. Wearing my Lufka coat, hat long jumper. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really a dream job for me. I've always loved testing. I've always loved development, and it's something I really enjoy. There are a few bits of TV stuff and just other bits and pieces. I'm I'm, I'm very busy. I, I'm a few historic things, but I definitely miss racing the big races in the states, and I miss. Oh come on, what's what's your current FIA ranking? If anybody's listening. I managed to get myself downgraded to gold, gold, which was really didn't do much for me. But it's a bit stupid, isn't it? Where you have that race to the bottom, where you're trying to be worse than you perhaps. It's the are. only. See, I, I've said it, said it time and time again. It's the. It is genuinely, in career terms, the only sport in the world where your uh, options are restricted by your talent. Mad. But anyway, so yeah, I'm I'm still gold at the moment, but. Uh, yeah, I definitely have the itch to get back in a prototype. And That's a cracking thing to hear. We're going to ask the final question. And before I do, I just want to say a huge thank you to you. I know uh, MP and I'm sure our listeners absolutely appreciate giving up uh, an hour of your time to do this. Um, Eric Hardrada says, uh, Marino, and this is a tough one, so brace yourself. <laughs> Who has the better hairstyle, you or your lesser talented brother? Well... When he's got it all styled, he's obviously winning in the hair, the, the hair state. I've got to say, you see him first thing in the morning and you think I've definitely won the lottery when it comes to that because I get up and I'm already ready to go and he gets up and he... What's that guy that, that did the... Uh, Richard Simmons, was it? That did the workouts oh. in America? Yeah. That's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Marino, best of luck with everything, uh, with Singer, with everything. Uh, if you're out there and listening to the Weekend Sports Cars and you are aware of anybody looking for a talented gold-ranked driver with Sebring 12 hours win on his CV, um, you can get in touch with him through the Weekend Sports Cars at the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, without a shadow of a doubt. And say thank you once again and finally to Marino. He has been the legend that is Marino Franchitti. I've been Graham Goodwin. With thanks again to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to torontomotorsports.com for their continuing support. This has been part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and we will be back with the Week in Sports Cards next week. <laughs>